This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Once again, the Bnei Yisrael complained and Moshe Rabbeinu felt under tremendous pressure and he turns to Hashem and he says to Hashem, Lama Avdecha, Why have you made it so bad for your servant? I can't handle the pressure of this nation, all of their complaints and all of their problems. I can't handle the load anymore. At which point Hashem says to Moshe, Fine, choose 70 Zekanim and I'm going to take some of the Ruach HaKodesh from you transfer it to them, and they will help you carry the load, and together you'll carry the load of the Jewish people. In fact, that's what happens. Moshe Benu chooses 70 Zekanim, and these 70 Zekanim become Nevi'im, and they're given a tremendous opportunity to be leaders in the Jewish nation. Two of these people felt they weren't worthy, Eldad and Medad. Even though they were Zekanim, even though they were tremendous people, they were humble, felt they weren't worthy, and they didn't join the rest of the group by the Mishkan. All 70 were supposed to be by the Old Moed. Eldad and Medad stayed off on their own, and when the Ruach came down upon them, Eldad and Medad were also Misnaved, they also became Nevi'im. And Gershon, the son of Moshe, saw that Eldad and Medad were Misnaved b'machana. they were being Misnaved, they were saying Nevuah, in a way that they weren't supposed to, and Gershon comes running to his father, comes running to the tent of his father Moshe, and he says, Eldar, Meidar, Misnave, they're in the Machina, they're not by the Mishkan, they're being Misnave, they're saying Nevuah, in a place that they're not supposed to, and from that event, something very, very interesting happened. Moshe Beno defended Eldar, Meidar, but Miriam overheard a conversation at that moment. When Gershon came running in and said, that Eldad and Medad became Nevi'im, and they're being misnave in the Machaneh, and Sipora, Moshe's wife, let out a crack. She said, Oy vey, I feel terrible for their wives, because if in fact they are Nevi'im, then they're going to separate from their wives, as my husband has separated from me. Oy l'noshaseim said, I feel terrible for these women. <clears throat> Miriam overheard that, and she said to herself, wait a minute, I'm a Nevi'ah. I didn't separate from my husband. My brother Aaron is a Novi. He didn't separate. Why is Moshe doing this? And why did Moshe separate from his wife? That's not what's required for Nevuah. And what Miriam did was she went to Aaron Akoin, her brother, and she complained about Moshe. And then apparently Moshe was acting in some way inappropriately. And while those words were said out of tremendous love of a sister for a brother, and they were directed to the Kohen Gadol, they were Lashon Hara. And because of that, Hashem was angry. And in fact, Miriam suffered saras. And she had to leave the Machina because she had spoke Lashon Hara about her brother, Moshe. But what's very interesting to note is the conversation between Hashem and Aaron and Miriam. Hashem was very angry, if it could be, with Miriam for speaking Lashon Hara, with Aaron for accepting it. And Hashem calls out Moshe, Miriam, and Aaron to come immediately to the Mishkan. And when they're there, Hashem asked Moshe to step aside, and Hashem speaks directly to Miriam and to Aaron, and Hashem says, Shimunad Devarai, please listen to my words. You should know, you are Nevi'im, but you're nowhere near Moshe Rabbeinu. Your Nevu'ah is like a typical Navi. You see things in an occluded way, in a very 
dark way, Moshe Rabbeinu peh el peh, with absolute clarity of vision. Normally, when a Novi has a Nevuah, he has to go into an altered state of consciousness. If he was in his full, alert, conscious mind, there'd be almost an overload. It would just be too much of a shock to the system. So he has to enter into almost a different state of consciousness. Moshe Rabbeinu was the only human being who ever and ever will be able to speak to Hashem in full cognitive awareness, full, literally, like I'm speaking to you here now. He spoke to Hashem with full, complete consciousness. Says Hashem to Aaron and to Miriam, you are not Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu is on a different madrega, a different level, and the reason why he has to separate from his wife is because he's in a totally different league than you. And do not think it's out of gaiva, and do not think he's wrong. What he did was absolutely correct. And after explaining this, and then the Pesach says, Vayichar af Hashem, Hashem got angry if it could be, and that's when Hashem punished Miriam and she got Saras. Now Rashi makes a very important observation. There was almost like two stages over here. First Hashem speaks to Miriam and Aaron in a very gentle way, Shimunad Devarai, Benachas, in a very soft way. And then after explaining why it is that Moshe is really proper to separate from his wife, then Hashem's Vayicharaf, then Hashem gets angry. And Rashi explains why is it that Hashem did it that way, <coughs> explains Rashi, because Hashem wanted to speak Belosha Nachas in a way of very, very gentle. Eina El Lashem Bakasha explains in the Sivtei Chachamim, Hashem spoke Benachas, Yilohaya Devar Bekas, Lohayu Devar of Nishmaim. Hashem knew that if He spoke in anger, and he spoke strongly, his words would not have been accepted. Therefore Hashem said, Shimunab, please listen to my words. He spoke benachas, because he wanted his words to be accepted, and after Miriam and Aaron accepted his words, then Hashem, whatever that means, he got angry, and but first he spoke in a gentle manner, so his words should be accepted. And this is a very important Musar lesson, and that is, if you want your words to be accepted, make sure they're soft. The Orch explains that it's almost human nature. Imagine I jump on you. Imagine I physically attack you. It's instinctual that you're going to defend yourself. You're going to punch me back. It explains the Orch it's exactly the same way with verbal abuse. If I attack you, if I come on strong, it's almost against your will. You almost can't help yourself but to defend yourself. And the stronger I attack, the more you're going to repel. Divrei chachamim b'nachas nishmoim Wise men's words are heard benachas, gently. And why is it that wise men's words are heard? Because they speak benachas, they speak gently. When you speak softly, when you speak in a gentle tone, the person is able to be it. The minute you come on strong, the minute you're on the attack, the person feels attacked, and they're going to fight back, and your words are going to be rejected. And again, that's how Rashi explains why Hashem spoke softly to Miriam and to Aaron, because Hashem wanted His words to be accepted. And that is a very significant Musa lesson, very, very real for life, but there's only one problem. It makes very little sense. This is HaKadosh Baruch Hu, God Himself, speaking to Aaron and Miriam. This is Hashem Himself speaking to two of the greatest human beings who ever lived. And you're telling me if Hashem spoke strongly, they wouldn't have accepted His words? Meaning they would have assumed Hashem is wrong. Meaning, had Hashem spoke harshly, had Hashem come in in a very strong way, Miriam and Aaron would have said, Hashem's wrong, we're right. That sounds ridiculous. It sounds absurd. 
Meaning, the reason why if you come on strong, I'm going to reject you is because, listen, who said you're right, you're biased, you're prejudiced, maybe you're making a mistake. But this is God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. And if Hashem says to Aaron and to Miriam, this is the way it is, oh, you spoke too strongly, I'm, I'm going to reject you, I'm not going to accept, it sounds utterly ridiculous. And more than that, let's say Hashem spoke strongly. Let's say Hashem spoke in a very strong, angry sort of tone. And they didn't accept it. Do you understand what that would mean? That would mean that Aaron HaKohen, Miriam and Avia would be Kofrim. The two people who stood on our Sinai with the rest of the Jewish people <coughs> heard Hashem say, Hashem reached the highest level of Nevoah, would have been Kofrim, would have said, Hashem, you're wrong and we're right. It's utterly, it's very, very difficult to understand. It sounds ridiculous, if I may say so. And the question is, what does Rashi mean? <coughs> what is Rashi saying? Lo Hashem's words would not have been heard. And what does that mean? That Aaron and Miriam would not have accepted his words. And to understand that, I think we need to understand a little bit better the human being. And the simple reality is that we spend very little time understanding our inner workings, and we spend very little time understanding what actually makes us tick. And if you ever stop to really concentrate on what goes into the human personality, our motivations, our thoughts, our feelings, our perceptions, I think what you'll find is we're often clueless to the complexity clueless to the intricacies of the workings of the human mind, of our personalities. And I'll explain to you what I mean in a few simple examples. There's an interesting halacha in Shulchan Aruch. Shulchan Aruch in Simat Tzadik, Yishtadil Adam Spalav Tzibur. A person should daven in a shul with a tzibur, with a minion. <clears throat> now, Mishabur explains why is it that you should daven in a shul with a minion. <clears throat> Mishabur explains... Because Hashem will not find it disgusting, Hashem won't feel, find it abhorrent, the tefillah of a tzibur. I mean, a yachid may be, his tefillah be abhorrent. <clears throat> but if you dominate a tzibur, the schus, the merit of the tzibur will help you, and therefore Hashem won't find you, your tefillah to be repulsive. Okay, now let's understand that. What in the world does that mean? What do you mean Hashem would find a tefillah repulsive? A Jew is dominating, pouring out his heart to Hashem. It's okay, so it's not Betzibur, not with ten Jews. He's dominating on his own. But he's pouring out his entreats, he's begging, he's beseeching, speaking to his Creator. Why would Hashem find that repulsive? And if you'd like to understand the answer to this question, I'll share with you an interesting little Musr exercise. Tomorrow morning, before you daven chakras, I want you to put a pen in your pocket and put a card or piece of paper in your pocket next to it. And right after you finish Shemana Esrei, I want you to take out that pen, take out that piece of paper, and write down what you were thinking about during Shemana Esrei. Write down your thoughts. Now, I don't mean your Heilige Kavanas and the Yichud Hashem. I mean what else you were thinking about. Oh, I can't forget the milk, and i got to pick up a baby, i got to do this, i gotta, I got a client, i got to make that call. And write down all those stray thoughts, all those strange sort of mind wanderings, and you're going to find something very interesting you're going to find that likely you could fill a sheet. As a matter of fact, and a little bit of full disclosure over here, I work on davening. I work on it very hard. I learn Musa every day. I've said many shurim on davening. I've said many series on it. And I am often aghast by my inability to keep my brain on on. I'll be speaking to Hashem right here, right there. And then suddenly, two brachas later, three brachas later, I wake up, where, where did I go? 
And that's a bit curious, because I think about it, and I know that I'm standing in front of the King of Kings, the Creator of the heavens and the earth, God Himself, the most mighty, most powerful, richest, most influential, and I, while speaking to God, space out, thinking about all kinds of trivial things, and all kinds of nonsensical things. And if you'd like to understand why it requires a special schus that Hashem shouldn't find our tefillahs disgusting, I believe if you think about the way we treat our King, our Creator, it's not so respectful. And I don't mean to be harsh over here, but if you imagine that you got an appointment with the mayor or with the governor or the president, and in the middle of that conversation you just started spacing out, your mind started wandering, you started whatever, Needless to say, get him out of here. Like, well, come on. And therefore, I believe there's a lot to question about the way we daven. And it's again, it's just the reality. And therefore, it's a very good idea. The Sheikh Aruch says, daven with a minion is special schus, and the gathering together will protect, and your tefillah will be accepted. But here's the question What is my problem? Why can't I keep my brain on? If I'm speaking to you, I can concentrate for 5 minutes, 6 minutes, 10 minutes. It's not a problem. But the minute I'm speaking to Hashem, everywhere but where I'm supposed to be. And the question is, why? So let's deal with the why behind it. And the why behind it is really quite basic. And that is because I, who am speaking to you, am comprised of two very different parts. And there's a part of me in a Shema that comes from under the Kisya cover that's pure, that's brilliant, that's insightful, that only wants to do what's good, right, and proper. And there's another total, complete half of me, the nefesh of Bahami. Hashem took I, the Neshama, put me into this body, and this body has a nefesh. The nefesh has desires and appetites, as all of the desires and instincts that you'll find in any animal in the animal kingdom. And the I that I'm speaking to you am comprised of both. But you see, here's the point. I am mixed in here. I'm mixed into this heavy body, and like a very thick, heavy coat, it covers me, it's a cloak that blocks me. And it's almost like when you go to the dentist and you get Novocaine, you don't even feel your lip. There's Novocaine in my heart. I can't feel Hashem's presence. I can't recognize Hashem being here because I'm in this heavy cloak of physicality, this heavy body that blocks, that occludes me, doesn't allow me to see it. And if you'd like to know why it's so difficult to daven, really it's quite simple. If I really work on it, and I really, really work on davening, I'll get it 20%. 18%, 22%. But 80% of it is blocked. Meaning I'll get in a vague sort of sense, Hashem is here, I think. But I don't really feel it. Why? Because I'm ensconced in this heavy body. I'm encased in this blockage. And I can't feel it. I once, in the Musavad, there's a very good muscle I once used. If you take a fine radio receiver, very, very sensitive radio receiver, and you put it into... 20 feet deep down in a concrete bunker. The radio waves can't penetrate 20 feet of concrete. The radio is useless because the radio waves don't penetrate. When Hashem put the neshama into the body, it's, my neshama is covered with layers and layers of physicality. And I can barely hear. I barely feel a Shabbos. I barely recognize reality. And when I'm dominating to Hashem, I get it 15%, 18%, 22%. And one of the strange things about being a human being is I could know things and not feel them. And that is one of the unusual qualities of our conscious mind. 
I could know with absolute veracity a certain fact, but I just don't feel it. I can know with absolute vadayas, I will die. It's only a question of time. It's only a question of when. But I know I, as every other occupant of this world, will pass, and yet it's not part of my operating mode. It's not part of my conscious mind. How could it be? I know it. Statistically, I'm aware of it. I can maybe even tell you the death rate of people in my age in general health bracket. And again, there are many, many things that we human beings know with absolute knowledge, but I don't feel it. I'm not margish it. And that's one of the curious realities of our conscious mind. But there are a number of other curiosities about the mind. The second one is that my perceptions and my judgments are affected by my moods, feelings, and emotions. One moment I can be clear, rational, judicial, and very, very wise, and then I get affected by a mood, by an emotion, by a feeling, and suddenly my shura is no longer functioning. I view things differently, I react differently, I make different decisions. And would you like to see a classic example? One of the classic examples of this is, there was something recently reported to the, at the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science. They studied parole judges in Israel. Now these were eight judges who for a living, as judges, what they did was they judged parole cases. They would get the various cases in front of them, and all day long, all they decided was, is this person worthy of parole, or should he stay in prison? And they would go through the dockets. Each case got about six minutes. And here was the question. Could there be things that might affect the judgment? Could there be different outside influences that might determine whether a judge would likely grant parole or not? Now let's start with the following. Only 35% of the cases that come in front of these judges are ever granted parole. The vast majority, 65%, are denied parole. But 35% are granted parole. And the question is, would there be anything that might influence the judges in terms of more likely granting parole or less likely granting parole? And here's what the study found. The judges sat all day. And they began in the morning. And then towards mid-morning, there was a break, sort of like a mid-morning snack. And then they continued to lunch. There was a lunch break. Then in the mid-afternoon, there was again a snack. And this is how they went through their day. And this is what the researchers discovered. When the judges began their day, 65% of the cases were granted parole. But as the time wore on and got closer to the next break, apparently they got a little bit hungry, a little bit tired, and the rate went down from 65 to 30 till almost 0% by the break. Then they would go for their break, take their snack, come back, and again, immediately after eating, the rate was 65%, and then again, it would wane, wane, wane until the next break, when it would be almost zero, and then again, when they came back from the break, it was 65%. And the odd part was, this was on a regular basis, and apparently, the fact that the judges were tired and hungry greatly impeded, greatly impacted their decision-making process. And the only conclusion that the researchers could reach was the fact that when they come back from a break, they're fresh, they're energized, they're satisfied, they're full, and they 
act in one way, as they get hungrier, more tired, a little bit more, almost cranky, they get much more <clears throat> demanding, and it went from 65% to almost zero, and what was odd about it is that these are professional judges. And something as frivolous as whether they just had a snack would make such a stark difference, from 65% granting parole to zero, and the only difference was a little bit tired, a little bit hungry, and a professional judge who does this for a living <clears throat> changed the conclusion vastly by this one criteria. And you have to say, that's strange. That's odd. How could that be? And it would be odd if it weren't the fact that it happens to you and I all the time. All the time. Just think back to that one time when you were beat, red, angry, mad, furious. I mean, really, really, it might have been two years ago, ten years ago, and someone did something, you did a great favor, and they paid you back, and, and I can't believe you, and you were furious, almost rage mad. If you think back to that moment, what you will find is that you began thinking in a vastly different way. Your value system changed. Your judgment changed. The way you looked at that person changed. What you thought about that person changed. And the reason why you might have said things and done things in that state of anger was because that person, you know what he deserves? He deserves, he doesn't deserve, he deserves to be punished. He deserves to be hurt. He deserves, and suddenly you feel vastly different about that person. But it's not just you feel, your mind clearly understands that that person is deserving of pain and punishment. And it's a very interesting thing that happens. It's not just your thinking. It's your entire emotionality. And you could find physiological responses. Your face will become flushed. Your blood pressure will rise. Oftentimes your teeth will clench. And there's a very real sense of, I'm furious with that person, and I view them vastly different. And if you'd like to understand the human condition, you become drunk with that emotion. And you become drunk with that emotion until the next morning. And the next morning when the emotion passes, no longer do you look at it this way. But here's the odd part about being a human being. It's not just anger. It's jealousy. It might be happiness in one way. It might be desire in another way. But we are pulled all day long by different emotions, different feelings, but they change who we are. They change how we view things, how we think about things, how we feel. A few schmoozing ago, I used the muscle, and I want to repeat it because it's very, very pivotal. If you'd like to understand yourself, you have to understand the following muscle. Imagine you have a family with five school-age kids, and they're eating dinner. And after dinner, they bench, and they all run for the one family computer. Now, determined by which child gets control of the keyboard, will decide what that screen is going to show. If one child wants to do his math homework, that's what all the children are going to watch. And one child wants to play a game, that's what all the children are going to watch. All children are watching that screen. The child who gets control of the keyboard determines what that screen shows. If you'd like to fundamentally understand yourself, I am that keyboard. I watch the keyboard. That's my conscious mind. And it depends on what gets control of my conscious mind. <clears throat> one minute it might be anger. The next minute it might be jealousy. Next minute it might be joy. Next minute it might be desire. But whoever gets control of that keyboard controls my conscious mind. 
And if it's anger that gets control of it, so in front of my conscious mind flows thoughts that are very interesting, very different than I normally think, and very real, and very much different than the way I normally think about. But here's the point. I have to watch it. I have to see it, and I have to think through those thoughts. And it's an incredible thing to watch when you see yourself change in front of your very own eyes. Almost like a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. In one minute I could assume it's absolutely unacceptable. I would never embarrass another Jew. I would never embarrass another... I would never speak that way. I would never open my mouth that way. And suddenly something comes over me. And all of a sudden, the same relaxed, calm eye... And not only should you get that, I should say much more. I should say ten times what you deserve. And then when I calm down, there's a very interesting thing that happens. You ever notice that there will be times when you got angry? You got really angry. And you found out that you were wrong. What happens? Do you ever get into a fight with someone, and you're into a fight, and you were angry at them, upset with them, upset with them, and finally you spoke to them? And finally when you spoke to them, you found out the simple reality, I was dead wrong. I I feel terrible, I feel horrible. While that may be true, I'd like to share with you something very, very interesting. And that is that though I know that I was wrong, nevertheless I still harbor ill feelings towards you. Why? Because for a day, for a week, for a month, across my brain were flashing those words, what you deserve and what you did, and over and over my brain said those words. And over and over I heard those words. And even though now I recognize that I was at fault, And even though now I recognize that I was totally wrong, nevertheless I imprinted onto my brain again and again the fact what you did, who you are, and I feel differently about you. And this is the third sort of strange reality, if you'd like to understand yourself, and that is that every thought that we think leaves an impression. If I think a thought, it leaves an impression on me. No matter what caused that thought, that thought might have been caused by desire, might have been caused by jealousy, might have been someone who took over that keyboard, and because of that, the conscious mind began spewing out different rationales. But those thoughts make an impression upon me, because they're emblazoned into me. I heard the words of my brain, and they become a part of me, and that impression doesn't leave too easily at all. One more little interesting step. It was recently during davening that I made a very, very interesting discovery. I have a lot of difficulty with my voice. I was a high school rebbe for about 15 years, and I did a good job of burning out my voice. And I've been taking voice lessons for almost 10 years. And it is probably the most difficult thing I've ever endeavored to do. You have to discover muscles that you don't even know exist. You have to hold placement that you don't even know what it means. And it took me a full 10 years till I really began to get a grasp on the technique. At this point, if I practice, if I'm aware, it's very helpful, very useful. If not, I'm toast. Here's what happened to me in the middle of davening. I daven now, Baruch Hashem, with a minion. And part of davening certainly is out loud. And somehow, in the middle of davening, I noticed that as I'm speaking to Hashem, concentrating, I'm speaking to the Creator of the heavens and earth, I'm also making sure that my placement is right, and my diaphragmic position is proper, I'm supporting the voice, I'm putting it here. I'm thinking about Hashem, and I'm thinking about my voice, and I'm saying, no, stop it, you're talking to God. But, but one second, I've got I to make sure I'm there. And, and as I'm doing it, I'm saying, what am I doing? 
I'm, I'm talking to Hashem, and I'm thinking about what, what am I doing? And I discovered something that's pretty obvious, and that is and that the human mind is quite capable of housing two thoughts at the same time. Believe me, I did not want the thought about placement and voice. I was trying to think about Hashem and trying to think that I'm who I'm speaking in front of, but I'm quite capable of containing two thoughts at the same time. And would you like to see where that's very, very applicable? If you go back to that time when you were really beat, red, angry, and you were furious... Imagine the time that you were really, really furious. I have a question. You got so angry at that traffic cop, how come it is that you didn't slap her? You got furious at your boss. Why is it that you didn't punch him? You got so angry at your spouse, and you said words, and you did things. Why is it that you didn't hit him? And I want to share with you a very interesting understanding. And that understanding is that you were there. You see, anger took over. Anger took over the keyboard. And because anger took over the keyboard in front of your conscious mind, and flashed those words, he's valueless, he's a creep, he's a bum. But you were watching it. And if anger would try to go too far, stop, you can't do that, you can't, that's pushing, that's too much. You see, as much as I lose control, I could be there, and I'm still there. And as much as anger or jealousy, or desire takes over, I'm still there, I'm still watching that brain, and on some level, I'm still alert and aware. And these four concepts are what you need to understand if you'd like to understand the I, you and I, as we function in the world. Number one, I can know very clearly. With absolute understanding, I can know things and just not feel them. Number two, my perceptions, my understandings, are greatly influenced by feelings, by moods, much like the judges who were influenced by being hungry. But number three, every thought that I think leaves an impression. No matter what caused the thought, it might have been hunger, it might have been jealousy, it might have been anger, but a thought crossed my brain, it leaves an indelible imprint, it's there and permanently part of me. And number four, I could have two thoughts at the very same time. And I believe that's the answer for Aaron and Miriam. If Hashem spoke to them harshly, I do not believe in any sense they would say, Hashem, you're wrong and we're right. Hashem, we got it right, you're wrong. It's absurd. And they were Nevi'im, the highest level, and believe me, they would have of course agreed. But had Hashem spoken to them harshly, deep within them, there might have been a bit of a conflict. They would have accepted what Hashem said, but that harshness would have repelled them, and on some level there might have been a voice within them that said, I don't know, Moshe Rabbeinu really is acting inappropriately. And we're Nevi'im and we're not doing it. All right, it's Hashem saying it, but we have to accept it, but I don't really buy into it. And I believe the Pshad is, of course they would have accepted it consciously. Of course they would have said, Hashem, you're the master of the universe, and you created the human, and we accept your words. But within them, there would have been this sense of, maybe it's not so true. It might have been 20%, it might have been a little bit, but within them, there might have been this sense of being repelled, not accepting Hashem's decision, and that would have left an indelible imprint upon them. There would have been a level of kfira, a level of denying Hashem, only 20% of the conscious mind, but there could be two thoughts in the human mind. On the one hand, I accept what Hashem says, but on the other hand, I question a little bit. On the other hand, maybe it's not so true. Maybe Moshe acted incorrectly. And had Hashem spoken sharply to them, there might have been that 20% of, I don't know if it's true, and that 20% would have made a roshim, would have made an imprint. And it might have been the type of imprint of kfira, 
that later on would have come to surface, it might have made a perfect Torah personality imperfect, and Hashem wanted to avoid that. And to avoid that, Hashem spoke softly. When Hashem spoke softly, they accepted it totally and completely. Once they totally understood that they were absolutely wrong, and then then Hashem got angry, then Hashem could punish them, and it wouldn't have the effect. But if you'd like to understand the human being, you have to understand that the human being is very, very complex. And there can be many different things going on within one human being, many things going on within the thoughts of a person, and while they would have accepted what Hashem says on one level, on some level they would have felt maybe maybe it's not true, and that would have left an indelible imprint. Now, I believe that there are many, many lessons to learn from this Rashi. And let's start with the obvious one. The obvious one is to speak softly. The obvious one is that when you want to get your point across, don't do it with anger, don't do it with any passion, and certainly don't do it with that sense of ticked off, and I'm going to finally set you straight because it doesn't work. Now, that's obvious. And it's always obvious, and it would be obvious, if it weren't for the fact that we do it all the time. All the time. Just think about the last time your kids left the house a mess. Or your husband left dirty dishes in the sink. Or your co-worker took credit for your work. Your intentions were to straighten that person out. Your intentions was that your children shouldn't do it again. Your intentions was to explain to your husband why he shouldn't do it again and why he should act differently. And likely what you did was work against yourself in the most egregious manner. Because when you get ticked and you get angry, you're coming on strong, you're letting them know, and the more angry you are, the more vehement you are, the more you're repelling them. And the more you're forcing them to reject your argument, even if they know it's true, even if they know you're right, it's human nature, that's what the Orchasadikim is speaking to us about. And the point is that your husband, your children, your wife, whoever it may be, is not Aaron and Miriam. It won't be a 20%, it'll be a 100%. And all you got to do to make sure that someone doesn't accept your position is argue it. All you have to do is make sure that you present it with a lot of anger, a lot of vehemency, a lot of passion. And it's a guaranteed way that they won't accept it. And this is something that I think is we've talked about before, but it's something that bears repeating and is an important lesson to again hear from this Rashi. But I believe that there's an even bigger lesson for us here. If I could share one message with any bar mitzvah boy, with any bas mitzvah girl, it would be one single concept. And that is today you're going live. As a child, any action you do is practice. It doesn't last. It's not doesn't count. And when you become a bar mitzvah, when you become a bas mitzvah, you're now going live. Now every action is indelibly imprinted into your neshama. Imagine you have a beautiful, crystal clear hard drive, nothing written on it. From this moment on, every action, every debur, every thought is permanently etched into your hard drive. Think about that single idea. And what you're starting with is a clean, fresh slate. And every single activity that you now engage in is writing onto that hard drive indelibly, scratching it in, etching it in, and will remain part of you for eternity. And again, if I could give that message to a bar mitzvah boy, to a bar mitzvah girl, I think it would have a tremendous impact because at that moment there's clean white robes 
and that moment of pure neshama. And from that moment on, every single action, every single word, and every single thought etched in permanently, I believe that concept is very key and vital to be aware of. But here's the interesting observation. <clears throat> you and I are human beings. And there's expressions that are bantied about today. I have an expression I would like to coin. I'd like to start a movement. Maybe we'll make protests. Maybe we'll create an entire new movement. And the name of my movement is Your Life Matters. Your Life Matters. And what that means in plain, simple language is your actions, your words, and your thoughts permanently are embedded into you, into the essence of you. And what you engage in, what you do, how you use your time, and becomes a part of you for eternity. Your life matters, and everything that you do shapes, molds you, and becomes a part of you. Now on one level, it's rather obvious that your thoughts shape you. If you discuss with a person who's depressed, and on a regular basis I get people who call me with various issues, and often it's a depression issue. And I highly recommend the book by David Burns, Feeling Good, And the book really was the first popular version of cognitive behavior therapy, and his entire thesis, the entire book is based on one single premise, twisted thinking. Depressed people have either, either it's caused by or it's involved in, but almost invariably you find a person who's depressed, there's distorted thinking, there's twisted thinking, meaning... Imagine for a minute that all day long you said to yourself, I'm worthless, I'm a garbage, I'm a slime, everything I do, I'm a failure, everything I do is bad, I'm just no good, I'm never going to make it. How would you feel? Well, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize that you're going to feel pretty lousy. Now, why it is, is a great question, but people have different biases, different natural personalities. Some people have an optimistic bias by nature. They're very optimistic and have a sense of great great opportunities, sense of looking forward to things. And some people have a pessimistic bias, they have a negative view. And interestingly enough, neither one chose that view. Neither one chose that bias. If you have an optimistic bias all day long, your mind is saying, hey, I'm doing good, things are good, things are happening, good things are... And guess what? You're in a buoyant mood. If you have a pessimistic bias, all day long you're saying to yourself, I'm worthless, I'm a creep, I'm a failure, nothing's going to succeed, and besides, the whole thing's going to fall apart anyway... And guess what? You're going to feel pretty lousy. And the premise of the book, which is the premise of cognitive behavior therapy, is one. And that is your thoughts affect you. What you think shapes you. In this case, it's in a topical manner. It shapes your moods. And what you think about shapes the way you feel. And if you feel about yourself, you're a lousy loser and you're a down and out, that's how you're going to feel. On the flip side, if you think positive thoughts, you're going to feel very good about yourself. And the entire approach is based on one single concept, control your thoughts. Control your thoughts and you control your moods. Now I'd like to share with you, we spoke about this before, but it begs being repeated. And that is the essence of so many mitzvahs in the Torah. But not just in terms of depression or happiness. The, Ebenezer explains rove mitzvahs of the Torah. And most of the mitzvahs of the Torah are liyasher leva adam, to make man's heart straight. And what that means is, the way I feel is directly shaped 
by the thoughts that cross my heart. And let's take a couple examples. Do not hate your neighbor in your heart. But I hate the guy. I hate, he's a creep, he's a monk. I just hate his gut. What am, I don't want to. But I do. I hate the guy's gut. Now what? What do I do? Torah says I'm not allowed to, but, but, but I, I, I hate him. Now, if you go to your local psychologist, and I love to hear the psychobabble of the day, the psychologists say you cannot control your feelings. Behaviors, yes. Feelings, no. Feelings you can't control, <clears throat> but behaviors, yes. Now, it is true that you have to learn to control your behaviors, but I'd like to ask you a little question. If you can't control your feelings, how could the Torah say, V'haftarecha kamocha? How could the Torah say, B'sedek tishpot amitecha? Judge your neighbor favorably. How could the Torah say, I, the guy, I, I know what he's doing. You and I know what he's doing. He's, you know, come on, come me a break. But if you study the vast amount of mitzvahs that demand my feelings, losachma, do not cover it. How about losasava, don't desire. My neighbor shows up with a green jaguar. Now, I didn't know that jags come in a green color, but the minute he shows up in the driveway with that color jag, I need it. I have to, I, I, I need it. I, listen, it's my feeling. What do you want from me? How could, how could you expect me to change? Yet the Torah expects us to change. And there's a love in the Torah called Losasave. Forget Losachmod. <clears throat> Forget don't covet. Don't desire. What does it mean, don't How can I not desire? And the great secret, <clears throat> Sefer Achinach explains to us, Ebenezer explains to us, the great secret of human success is realizing that my feelings are directly shaped by my thoughts. You're right, I cannot directly control my feelings, but I can control my thoughts, and when I control my thoughts, I control my feelings. So if depression is the issue, you have to write down a good number of things that you do well. And you have to say them to yourself again and again and again. And I tell this to guys all the time. If you're feeling depressed, you have to write down ten things that you do well. Give me five. Give me five things you've done well. Five things, and I need you to get up in the morning and say, I'm good. I'm successful. I have succeeded before and I'm going to succeed. And I tell a guy, when you say it, the hardest part is when inside you there's a voice that says, cut me a break, you're lying. And that's when you got to fight it and you have to keep saying it. And if you keep saying it and saying it, what's going to happen is it's going to impact your feelings. Now, how do I know that this works? And how do I know that it's true? Because this is the study of Musr. The <clears throat> Mishabur explains each Jew has an obligation to learn Musr every day. What is learning Musr? It's taking a line and saying it again and again and again until I get it. Folks, let's be candid. I've learned the first parak of Masulah Shisharim a couple of times. Um, <clears throat> a couple of times means more times than I could ever begin to count. For the past 40 years, I've been learning it, giving shir on it, I've written a book on it, <clears throat> I've given Musavads. I cannot tell you how many times I've gone through the first parak of Masulah Shisharim and the first ten parakim, I cannot begin to count. So I have a question. Let's say I'm not the brightest guy in the world. Okay, fine. you got to do it twice, three times, four times, ten times, but come on, 35, 40 years, and you're doing it again and again. What are you doing? What are you hot? What, come, give me a break. And would you like to know what I'm doing? <clears throat> what I'm doing is taking abstract concepts, taking ideas that I feel <clears throat> 10%, and trying to embed it into the essence of me. And when I say it again and again and again, you know what happens? I begin feeling it. It has an impression. It creates a more deeper impression. 
and I'll go to 20%, 22%, 23%, and with that, I change. I feel differently. I experience life differently. I become a different human being. And that's how you work on yourself. You ever wake up in the morning and say, I'm not a big Baal Bittal. I would like to be. I would love to trust Hashem. I would love to have this sense of, Hashem, you run the world. Hashem, you love me more than I love me. You know better than I was. But I just, I don't feel it. So what do you do? What do you do? Would you like to know what you do? You do what Dovin Amelech did. Again and again and again, you say certain phrases. You pick a mantra. You pick a phrase that works for you. Hashem, you're my fortress. Whatever works for you. You have to say the words again and again and again. And would you like to know why David Amelech became David Amelech? When David Amelech went to fight against Goliad, Shaul offered him his armor. Remember, Goliad was a giant, physical giant. And he came out and he faced the entire Jewish army. And he said, why should we fight a war with so many soldiers? You pick your gibor, I'll fight against them, and that will determine who wins, the Pelishtim or the Jews. And every day Goliath came out. And every day, not a single gibor of the entire Jewish army had the courage to stand up to him. He was gigantic. He was huge. Phenomenally powerful. David Melech was not a soldier. David Melech didn't belong in that place. He was coming to bring something. And he saw this Chil Hashem. He saw the Jewish army being debased. And he said, I cannot stand the Chil Hashem, Hashem's name being trampled that way. And he goes to Shaul HaMelech, I will fight Goliath. And Shaul says, don't do it. You're a Nar. You're going to be destroyed. You have no battle experience. You're not a giant. He's going to wipe you out. And David said, I will do it. Shaul knew the courage of David. And Shaul said, fine, take my sword, take my armor. Says David HaMelech, uh-uh. It won't be as clear. If I wear armor, if I bring a sword, it won't be as clear that it's a nace. I'm going out without a sword, without armor. I will face him unarmed. Kachava, and again, David Melech threw that stone. It pierced the visor, the hole where Goliath looked out, killed him on the spot, and the man was dead. But do you understand the incredible bitachon, the incredible trust in Hashem? He went there and said, Hashem, you are my creator. In you I trust. I cannot stand this embarrassment. And he went forth with such incredible bitachon that it's hard to imagine. But how did he get it? How did he acquire it? How did he reach that level? And the answer is years and years of years of saying to himself again and again, how did I get here? How did I become who I am? How am I still alive? Didn't Hashem save me from this? Didn't Hashem save me from the dove, from the bear and the lion? Didn't this happen to me? And I've said this, but it again bears repeating, there is one book that you need to read. There is one book that you need to read and make it a part of your essence. And that is your autobiography. Your autobiography is that book that you write about yourself because every Jew has a story, and when you write down your stories, but it's not just that you write your stories, you write it and you say it, you tell it again and again, and not necessarily to other people, you say it to yourself, you repeat it, you remind yourself, again and again and again and again, and eventually I get it, oh my goodness, Hashem was there, Hashem was there again, Hashem saved me again, 
And eventually, you begin writing that reality into your conscious mind. Eventually, your thinking becomes your feelings. Your feelings become your reality. Would you like to know what a Jew is? A Jew gets up in the morning and says 16 brachas. 16 birchas hodah and birchas anenin. A Jew gets up in the morning and says, Thank you, Hashem, for my vision. Thank you, Hashem, for my arms. Thank you, Hashem, for my mobility. Thank you, Hashem, the blessings that you have granted me. But I'm supposed to say 16 of them every morning and thanking Hashem for the tremendous bracha that I have. Could you imagine what my life would be like if I put my brain on on? Every morning, thank Hashem for the fact that I could get out of bed. I can stand up. I can walk. Hashem, you've granted me vision. You've granted me hearing. I didn't have to have, many people don't, go to the old age home, see what it's like. Watch an 85-year-old man walking with a walker, see what life is like there. But I recognize that, Hashem, you've granted me this, and you've granted me this again and again. And when you say those words, 16 brachas a day, and you say it day after day, with the brain on on, what happens is you begin feeling it. And you begin feeling blessed. And you begin feeling, wow, my life is so enriched. My life is incredible. Look what I have. Look at the fact that I'm born into this generation. The wealth, the abundance, the luxuries. And Baruch Hashem, you put me into this generation. Yes, there are difficulties in these times, but there's so much bracha. Thank you, Hashem. And when you think those thoughts again and again and again and again, what happens is they begin shaping your reality. But it's not something you just come to a Wednesday night, Musa Shmuz and say, very nice. And Rashefa said, good. You have to write it down. You have to say it. I walk my talk. I don't. I can't say I'm any great tzaddik. I'm certainly not a Balmofis. But I can tell you that I learn Musr every day. It's at least a half hour, usually more, maybe even sometimes too much. But I'm sitting there doing one thing, training my brain. Training my brain to operate on the way it should. But when I say training my brain, it's to train the way I feel, the way I think, the way I approach life. But that's the great secret. When you control your thoughts, you control your emotions, and you control your thoughts, you control your feelings. When you control your thoughts, you are the master of you. And if you don't control your thoughts, you're lost. If you can't control your thoughts, you can't control your feelings, can't control your emotions, and like a raft out at sea that blows with whatever wind, whichever wind blows it, and pulled by desire, pulled by jealousy, pulled by whatever, and you have no control over yourself. And the only way to get control of yourself, the only way to really grow, is to recognize this simple reality. That the way I think becomes the way I feel, becomes who I am forever. I think this Chazal shares with us a tremendous insight. Hashem spoke softly to Moshe, to Aaron, and to Miriam. Why? Because soft words are accepted. Harsh words are repelled. Now again, this is Aaron Akoin and Miriam. I don't believe that they would have rejected Hashem. Hashem, you're wrong. But on some level, and they would have accepted it, but on some level there might have been a little bit within them. You see, the complexity of the human is such, I could have two thoughts at the same time. I could be dominating Shema Nasri, speaking to Hashem, and also thinking about voice placement. And so too, Aaron Akoin could be there, recognize, of course Hashem is right, but somehow <clears throat> being repelled because Hashem spoke too strongly and feeling maybe Hashem isn't right. Maybe maybe it's not true. Maybe, maybe Moshe's wrong in what he's doing. And the human mind is capable of having two thoughts at the same time. And the human mind is very, very capable 
<coughs> knowing things and not feeling it. And more than anything, the human mind is incredibly affected by my emotions and by my feelings, by my moods. The judges who get hungry and judge things very differently, anger that changes the way I view things, jealousy that totally changes my mindset, <coughs> desire that suddenly makes me say things and do things I would never do or say. And that is the human condition. When you begin to understand the delicate nature of the person, and you begin to learn, you begin to understand, number one lesson to learn from this Chazal is, when I speak to others to remember this great Yesod, I am very sensitive. The way you speak to me will greatly influence whether I receive your message or not. Why? Because I'm a sensitive human being, a complex human being. Many things going on. And the great secret of human relations is, you too are a human being. And all you have to do to guarantee that your message isn't received is to come on strong and be upset, be ticked. Just say it with a little bit of anger and you are guaranteed to shut down the other person against their will. Even if they won't accept it. Even if they know it's true, you're shutting them down because the minute you're speaking strongly, automatically they're forced to reject it. But again, the real Kiddush here is the complexity of the human. Aaron and Miriam would have accepted on one level, not accepted on another, and that is our reality. When we daven, we know Hashem's there, 20%. When we say the words again and again, what do I have to say the words again for? Why do I have to say it again? Because by saying the words every day, three times a day, time after time, it becomes more clear. It becomes more part of my reality. When I say Shema Yisrael twice a day, and I actually pay attention to those words, I'm a Kabbal Omah I'm accepting Hashem as my master, I'm beginning to get it. And when I say it again and again and again, suddenly I start feeling it. People have this question, I don't feel davening. I don't, get, I, I don't feel it. If you put the brain on on and listen to the words that you say, and what you're doing is you're attempting to change the way you feel, the way you think. You're attempting to gain control, mastery of yourself. You have to work on it. It doesn't come without work. It doesn't come naturally. It's something that requires working. It's something that requires focus on. But it ultimately is the great key to success because it ultimately it affects every relationship. It affects who you are and most of your life. And most of your inner condition is shaped by your thoughts. And when you understand that your life matters, when you understand that what you do is a part of you forever, when you leave this earth, your body's put in the ground, you'll be there. And you'll be there in exactly the form that you shaped yourself into. All of those thoughts and all of those actions made you into an entity, either shining brilliant like the sun in midday, or maybe less, maybe a lot less. And it's all based on one thing. If you learn to control your thinking, if you learn to control the thinking, you become the master of your ship, the master of your emotions, the master of who you are. And if you don't learn, you're at the whim of any desire, anything that passes. And Hashem grant us the wisdom and understanding to put this into practice. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.